Hey everyone and welcome to Developer Tea. My name is Jonathan Cottrell and in today's episode I'm interviewing Lauren Cottrell. Lauren is the Director of Interactive at Whiteboard. That is where we both work together uh, and obviously we share a last name. We'll get into why and whenever I start this interview with her. Uh, we're actually doing this in my house right now. Uh, and I'm really excited to do a live interview. I don't get a chance to do that uh, every single time because we do so many episodes and the live interview is not always feasible unless the person is in the area. Of course, Lauren happens to work at Whiteboard. Uh, we're going to be talking about things like Agile and this concept of team wakes. And we're going to discuss a lot of things around uh, this this idea that you're probably, you've probably called it project management before and uh, talking with Lauren before the episode uh, we were talking about project management, how that's not really a term that we want to use going forward at Whiteboard. So uh, we're going to get into all of that in today's episode. It will probably go into a second episode like normal uh, with all of our interviews. We, we end up usually opening up discussion more than we do on the, on the monologue style episodes. So I'm really excited to talk about this stuff. I think developers don't get a chance to talk about project management with the project managers very often. A lot of times we hide in our caves. Uh, we don't really you know, come out because the client is often treated like the enemy for most developers. Uh, and it's not the way it should be. So that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode with Lauren. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I've waited quite a while to do this. Um, we do share the same last name, and the reason for that is because Lauren and I actually got married in 2013, in, in June of 2013. Uh, and, and Lauren, when did you start at Whiteboard? January of that same year, so uh, back when we were engaged. And Lauren technically started at Whiteboard full-time before I did, although I was working contract uh, for Whiteboard for many years before that. Uh, and, and the reason I'm excited to have you on the show, Lauren, is not not just because you're my, my wife and it's a lot of fun to have your own wife on your podcast, uh, but also because uh, you have a lot of insight into how projects should be managed. You, you've learned from mistakes, right? You you have this background and I, I have a little bit more knowledge than the person who's listening to the show right now, but you have this great background in, in watching projects be mismanaged and then discovering new ways of managing them correctly and the history that your dad has in project management and more specifically uh, in the agile world. And so we're going to talk about all of that. But first, I want, I want you to kind of share uh, where you came from, kind of your, your educational background as well as where you came from uh, to get to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, in high school and college, I did just enough to become a freelance graphic designer and front-end web developer. Uh, I never learned anything more than HTML and CSS. Primarily worked in Photoshop and Illustrator and uh, Dreamweaver back in the day, as painful as it is to admit. The whole Adobe suite. Mm, it's wonderful. So I uh, took that with me and in entering into college, decided to pick something a little bit more applicable and adaptable as far as not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do getting out of college. So I picked communications in the media. And actually getting straight out of college, I found a job off Craigslist because I was tired of being a freelance designer uh, working in my pajamas and in my living room. I'm too much of an extrovert to not be around people at, at some point in the day. So from there, I uh, got that job on Craigslist and it was actually a sign company uh, so I was able to use 
most of my graphic design skills, apply that to a little bit more of the architectural world and build signage via my designs. Also did customer service. And that's actually where I stumbled into project management, as it was called there. They had a few national accounts uh, like Pet Boys and Charming Charlie, and I kind of just saw a lot of disorganization and wanted kind of a higher touch uh, than they were providing and said, hey, can I help out with this? What kind of disorganization uh, were you seeing that you that you decided to step in? Like what, what were some of the common problems that you saw? Yeah, it was a family owned company. So there wasn't a lot of clearly defined assignments as to who was going to follow up with the client, um, who was actually going to manage permitting, the status of various pieces of paperwork or from designs to approval. There was just kind of a lack of uh, visibility in the process uh, and probably a lack of documentation, really, at the end of the day. Did it affect timeline? Is that like the most common issue or was it uh, a knowledge sharing thing? What was the biggest deal? Yeah, I would I would say it's probably a little bit of each of those. Um, these were um, everything from design to approval to permitting to then actually fabricating it in-house and then scheduling installation or um, even contracting out installation in various cities for these, you know, um, places where we weren't, where the signs were going up at a big mall or something like that. So uh, a lot of those, there was, you know, there were breakpoints at each of those at different times. And um, there wasn't really just one person really owning the uh, higher profile account. So I kind of just stepped in and helped out without really being asked to. It's really interesting because you're identifying all these systematic issues um, that are in this this physical space, and so many of this, uh, so many of these issues that you're finding in a sign company, you can see in a development company. You know, sharing of documentation, the timeline stuff, uh, obviously the the deliverables themselves. You know, ever since you worked there, I've had this fascination um, with how similar some of those problem spaces are. Yeah. And, and I really think that this isn't just like it, it's not just a. Uh, you know, a phenomenon that these two things are similar. I think pretty much every industry has something kind of like this. Now, obviously, with with something like a sign design, or I'm sorry, not a sign design, but like a fabrication of a known uh, a, a known sign style or a known, uh, you know, you have plans and you've built the sign before, so you're replicating the same sign. That may be significantly different from writing brand new software. But you're still going to have some of those same problems and multiple links in the chain and something uh, early on falling behind and uh, like having a cascading effect on later issues. It's so interesting to see that parallel in in the software world. It's production uh, in both scenarios. Uh, Visibility of status, communication, documentation, uh, all of these checkpoints along the way. I mean, there's so much correlation there. So you you started working on these projects, and how how did you manage? You know, wh- what did you change? What did you step in? What were the first things that you decided to change as, at the sign company? Documentation was a big one, um, and assignment. I kind of made sure that. It, whoever needed to participate at various junctures, it was clearly uh, communicated and documented. And we actually had a system for it versus, um, you know, is the owner or is the brother going to take care of it? Who knows? Um, and that was kind of what we were we were dealing with. Yeah. So 
so I happen to, once again, I know where the story is going here. Unlike the listener, I, I know that eventually all of this, all of this experience, it feeds into what you do at Whiteboard each and every day. But when you first got to Whiteboard, we didn't have all of this stuff figured out. Nope. Uh, so can you talk <laughs> about kind of the state of things when you arrived at Whiteboard in relation to, you know, the state of things when you when you decided to take over project management at uh, at the sign company? Yeah, it's amazing the parallels, even just thinking about it today. Uh, Whiteboard felt much like a family-owned, uh, all-in-one pop-up shop kind of thing that was so similar to the sign company that I worked at. Um, it was about five or six of you guys. I was the first female, and uh, you guys were trying to share the role assignment of client communication and email and task management. Um, there wasn't really a tool or um, clear checkpoints or handoffs or baton passing. And I came in and said, hey, I'm willing to do all of these things and explore where we're doing things and where we, do, where we could do it better effectively. And it was really interesting how that happened because in the early stages of a company, and, and this is not just for, for our company, um, especially for agencies, but in the early stages of a company, you have this effect of, of kind of quite literally being in the same room together, right? So yeah. uh, if there's something that needs to get done, you can almost like tap somebody on the shoulder or, you know, if they have their headphones in, throw a ping pong ball at their head to try to get their attention <laughs> and, and, and get them to do, you know, whatever that thing is that you need done. Or, you know, it's very, the, the communication is so open and there's so many people or, or, or there's so uh, so obvious, literally audio happening around you, and you see over people's shoulders. That visibility creates this sense of of co ownership of all of the problems that the that the company is experiencing. Definitely. And so, as a result of that, you know, we we don't have developers in that room who aren't in the know. You almost have to like literally put your hands over your ears and uh and close your eyes to not know if there's something that is going wrong or to not know the status of a project or yeah. whatever but we were growing at that point to the stage where we we started have pe- having people in two rooms and we started having you know people working remote and we you know all these different scale issues that happen yep. as the company gets bigger so it's not just a, a a text thread worth of people you know a group chat that doesn't cover it anymore and we were we were experiencing those growing pains right at the time that you stepped in and and took over this communications role. Yeah, the, you know, you were a developer, but you kind of would design sometimes. You know, that was some of the state of the situation at the time. The CEO was also the primary one of the primary developers. Uh, you know, the- and he held on to that role for <laughs> a very long time. Hopefully, he listens to this episode. By the way, we've tried to fire him a few times from that role and let him really be a CEO, but he loves it too much. So. Yeah, it's a sign of, of a good thing, I think, just as this is a total side note. Uh, I'm really excited about that particular uh, fact in our company, that we have people who are uh, at higher levels of leadership, if you want to call it a higher level, and they're still so connected to the nuts and bolts of the work that we're doing. Even if that's, you know, if all the manage, management books in the world uh, tell us that, hey, you should, you know, you should delegate or uh, you should uh, you should hand this off to someone else. Um, we still have that level of of you know on the ground to to use a terrible metaphor, I guess. Yeah. But we have that this gritty sense of of connection to the work uh, and sense of involvement in the work. So yeah. maybe that's not super unique necessarily. 
I think that anybody who starts a company from their living room, like like Whiteboard was started, that there is some level of love for that uh, for that bottom end. It's like the you know Mark Zuckerberg still codes. He's last year he created this his smart house and he's still coding in PHP and still has a love for engineering. Uh, and I think that that's that's a mark of uh, of a good. Um, business person maybe or a good leader is that they have some love some deep love for that initial thing that kicked off their business which in the in our case was yeah. the power of uh, of technology being uh being used to create design that makes companies better yeah definitely so you came in and and you're you see this somewhat disorganized like shared load for client communication and it's what's interesting to me is that we almost we were like still almost able to manage it, which is kind of a miracle uh, looking back at it. But what was what were some of the first things that you started you know, doing when you got to whiteboard? Yeah, I fell in love with how we can work better together. So call it process. That was an evil word at the time, especially for startups and you know, creatives, processes, you know, just taboo, um, but call it strategy or um, working together, the way that we work together, there were ways to improve always, um, you know, on the daily, on the weekly. And that became really my passion. So um, it's working with clients in the same capacity. So it's not, you know, just communication. It's how can we work better with a client? How can we connect the client to our team? How can the team have more autonomy and also connection to the client uh, and not be, you know, walled away as if, you know, they're in a dark room and they don't have the power and the ability to communicate with the client. Rather, let's connect them as the expert, the solution builder with the client themselves and let them work together. And that's a lot of what we've been doing and continuing to try and try again and try in a different way, um, you know, four years of doing this, really. So I, I want to make a point to kind of show how effective Lauren's leadership has been in this in this scaling, because really, when she came in, she lifted the load and allowed Whiteboard to scale. Um, Whiteboard has grown from those initial, I think it was four people, maybe five people working when Lauren first joined the team to 25 people. Yep. And and we're now we have people on Lauren's team specifically. We have more than one project leader. Yeah, we've actually got four of us now. Um, I'm still an active role myself. I'm not just, you know, hey, director, helping with strategy and process, but I'm on the grounds with you guys, um, specifically in web applications. That's the types of teams that I help coach. So I want to I roll back a little bit and talk about uh, some of the inspiration that you've had in your life that has helped uh, get you to where you are today. Uh, We've talked about, you know, the sign company, but there's actually a really interesting part of Lauren and my story together, uh, and more specifically of Lauren's, uh, Lauren's family. Lauren's dad is uh, he has been active in the agile world, the agile uh, methodology, I guess is what you would call it. Is that is that the correct terminology? He would even say, oh, we don't use that word anymore. But yeah, agile framework, uh, the agile value, you know, so on and so forth. So Lauren's dad has done work for, for companies, you know, major, major companies like Sprint. And he's he worked at NASA, but he's been doing uh, agile agile coaching work for uh, well before I met him, in fact, when Agile was just becoming a thing. And so uh, through all of these years that Lauren was going on this journey 
of finding the wrong way of doing project management uh, in some ways, and then eventually refining that project that project management concept and learning more about this agile stuff, right? So that's that's what I want to get into now. Can you talk a little bit first of all? Talk about uh, some of the things that you would hear growing up from your dad uh, about Agile. Yeah, so he was working on things like uh, the Mars Rover project not too long ago. Uh, He was working with a team of engineers, coaching them on how to work better together and primarily through Agile values and frameworks. Um, And really, he just talks about the people and the momentum and the value of what they're working on. Um, He talked about focus. It was never about a process. And I I think that's where I had many light bulbs go off over the course of my time at Whiteboard was realizing entering into the web world, it was waterfall. Um, Tell me what waterfall is. Waterfall is uh, a segmented, uh, older project management style um, of, you know, one discipline working on their own uh, and then passing it off to the next discipline. Uh, Another piece of this is also that budget, time, and scope are all effectively fixed, um, which doesn't allow for change. It doesn't allow for the client to spend less money or more money. It doesn't allow the product that a team is building to change from the beginning plans to the end execution. Um, It also creates longer timelines. Uh, Deadlines are kind of this thing that happen over months. Um, A lot of these are what, you know, we have come to learn about Waterfall. Yeah, as I've understood it, and you've you've clarified it to me, as I've understood it from the developer perspective, the waterfall approach is like designing the whole thing in your mind or designing it like on a piece of paper or in a Trello board or trying to, to figure out all the specifications for something all at the beginning and then, you know, locking in a contract that like a four month contract or something crazy like that yeah. where you have a, a fixed endpoint in mind that's way off into the distance and you have all of these specifications and all this you know upfront design uh, and and you you shake on it right with the with a client or whoever is is paying you to create this thing yeah. and uh, ultimately in the end the reason waterfall uh, well, well we'll get into the reason why waterfall doesn't work but hopefully all of you have experienced this right it's it's a very common thing uh, because the way we the way our minds work and the way we we uh, we wrap our brains around uh, a deliverable, like selling something. Uh, a lot of the time, it ends up looking like uh, stuff that we buy at the supermarket, right? So if you go to the supermarket, you don't buy uh, one ingredient at a time and then go back in a couple of hours when you need the next one. Because the the amount of time that you need between now and the time that you're cooking or the amount of ingredients that you need, you know exactly what you need. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's relatively controlled. There's not really a lot of variance there. If you go to buy a car, you're not going to buy the door and then buy the engine and then buy the windshield. You're going to buy it all at once. Uh, the, there's a huge difference in the way we approach creating software uh, because for for a lot of reasons. Once again, we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, but we have to shift our brains away from thinking about uh, a website or uh, an, an application. We have to shift our brains away from thinking about those things like a, a thing that we would buy at the supermarket and instead think about them more like research and development projects, right? Yeah. These, these are brand new things. They've never existed in the world. 
and they're not exactly specified yep. from day one. There's no way to do it. Even in uh, even in the the most simple scenarios, there's no way to specify it properly. Yep. Like like if someone was to get a truly custom car made for just their family. I mean, that's kind of the metaphor here. Um, it, it, if if it was to be custom, you really have to have that that time for change and variance, um, even on something that you might know how to build. I love this metaphor actually because. Uh, what you have in this metaphor is you have a thing that looks a lot like the things you've built in the past. Yeah. It has doors. It drives. It, you know, it has an engine. There's no reason why you wouldn't look at that and say, oh, that's that's a car, right? But the fact that it is customized makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, that's the th- those were the types of things I was hearing from my dad and where Agile was kind of birthed out of. Uh, he was friends with some of the founding fathers, as they may say, that wrote the manifesto, the values for Agile. This was really software development that created this aha moment. And it was a lot of governmental projects where they were locking budget, time, and scope. And in the end, spending millions of dollars and the thing wasn't working and they just knew something was missing, something was lacking. So how could we shorten that timeline? How could we allow for more change? How could we uh, allow the experts to create the specs on shorter uh, cycles and produce something really awesome and working sooner and spend less money and then test it and keep building? Yeah, all of this sounds like pipe dreams to me. Like as a developer, I hear that and, and my you know my reasoning machine kind of spins up and says, yeah, that that's not that doesn't make any sense. Like there's too many good things in one sentence to be realistic, right? <laughs> yeah. But the the truth is, so I want to do a little thought experiment with our listeners for a second. Uh, and I think Lauren, you you will agree with this. Uh, if we were to look at a single problem, let's say uh, we're looking quite literally at one function, right? And I specify to you what that function should do. It's not unreasonable to think that you can look at that specification, commit to doing that thing, and then go and write that function, right? It's not that difficult to to comprehend a single function. Now, what makes this what makes this difficult is when you add multiples uh, upon multiples of functions to that same conceptual model, right? So, a single function is not difficult to commit to. Uh, a thousand functions or a, a hundred thousand functions, right? A hundred thousand routines in your code saying that I'm going to give you a specification for all of those and that you need to commit to a certain amount of time uh, to finish the, that hundred thousand different things. Well, that is totally unreasonable. Now, what did I change in that scenario? The only thing that I changed was the number of things you're committing to. Let's think about that for a second. Like that's a massive, massive difference in the way our brains work, and the way commitment works, and the way work works. Because really all we're we're talking about is limiting to this one thing because our our brains can actually conceptualize one thing very, very well. Yeah, and if I can interject here, it's true that we can only truly work in a order of things. If something is to come first, there's effectively the first step that we have to take. And in the other ways of working or project management styles, we're sort of cheating ourselves and lying a little bit to ourselves and the client in saying that we can do a bunch of things all at the same time. 
And that's not the case. So. Oh, yeah, that's a common theme on the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We've talked about uh, the myth of multitasking so many times. Uh, it's it's completely impossible. Yep. And I'm actually, if I can go there, reading a book tomorrow. It's a children's book that uh, my father has gifted our future son. And it's called The Scrum Princess. Well, he didn't know it was a girl or boy, but either way, the story is really great. Um, it's actually about a princess who wants to make her kingdom the most wonderful place in the world and everyone will be happy to live there. And she encounters a wizard who is the one who teaches her more about these agile uh, practices and says, well, I can form a team, but our team can work on one thing. What's the one thing you want to work on first? Is it the fence? Is it the carriage? Is it the roof on the castle? And asks her and takes her through these practices and ceremonies and teaches her the roles And it's really neat to see the outcome because, of course, they all live happily ever after with a kingdom that was actually repaired and is sparkly and wonderful. And the carriage is fixed and the fence is fixed. And oh, wait, she thought she wanted a hippo, but she ended up being able to change her mind. She didn't have to spend the money up front because it wasn't fixed or waterfall. uh, And she decided not to get a hippo in the end. And she got to use those resources elsewhere to build a moat. It it reminds me for some reason of like progressive dinners. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so this concept of like changing things as you go along, right? Uh, a progressive dinner, if, if you're not familiar, you can Google it and probably find tons of Instagram pictures of these <laughs> things. But uh, basically, a progressive dinner, you have uh, a different course at each place that you go, right? So uh, if you go to, uh, you know, your first friend's house, and usually it's done by a group of friends, and uh, friend number one creates, their, they cook the appetizer, then friend number two cooks the main course, and, fr- and so on and so forth. Uh, so you can go to the first friend's house and eat the appetizer. And then when you get to the second friend's house, you can choose, like, do I, am I hungry? <laughs> and you don't have to eat that second course. And uh, instead of upfront ordering everything all at once, you're kind of going uh, progressively. Uh, it, the metaphor kind of breaks down because you're not really paying for the food anyway. But regardless, I, I can imagine this, like, conceptually working in things like, uh, like gift giving, right? So hmm. for a family that is... Uh, that is that has children and they're trying to decide how do we want to do, uh, for example, our family is going to be celebrating Christmas and how do we want to do presents with our children? It may be that if we uh, allow our children to get presents over the course of the entire month, that they'll realize that they want a different thing rather than making them list hmm. their entire group of presents, <laughs> right? Uh, we're literally brainstorming on our podcast right now go. about how we're, <laughs> how we're going to parent our child. But uh, if, if we allow our child to, uh, and hopefully this will help everyone who's listening to this podcast, understand the value of progressive decision-making uh, rather than trying to make all the decisions way early on yeah, and then experiencing all of the, the downfalls of that, right? Yeah, for all of you developers and designers who are wanting to learn something new, start small. Start with a daily goal and then a weekly goal and allow for change in between those weeks. Today's episode is sponsored by Linode. We're talking about being agile and one of the core ideas of being agile is being able to change quickly. And that is something that Linode supports because it's built on a very simple uh, ideology and that is to have Linux in the cloud. 
The same concept that made Agile so uh, so useful, the idea of doing one thing at a time and doing it well, that's exactly what Linux does. And Linode is providing you access to Linux in the cloud. There's so much you can do uh, with these boxes, and it starts at $10 a month. Now, you may think, well, of course, I'm not going to be able to get anything good for $10 a month. I'm going to have to go with a higher plan, but that's not true. Your $10 a month gets you a 2 gigabyte uh, two gigabytes of RAM on that $10 box it's, is a excellent beginner tier uh, that, that Linode is providing there. Linode is built uh, on eight different data centers. They have Intel E5 processors in their stack, and it's a 40 gigabit internal network. Uh, so the quality of Linode's infrastructure is not even a question. Uh, on top of that, they're going to give you a seven-day money-back guarantee. And if that's not enough, Linode is providing you with $20 worth of credit, which is equivalent to two months on that intro tier, $20 worth of credit just for being a Developer T listener. You can use the code DEVELOPERT2017. That's DEVELOPERT2017, all one word, at checkout for that $20 worth of credit. Thank you so much to Linode for sponsoring today's episode of Developer T. If you want to know more about Linode, head over to spec.fm slash Linode. Thank you again to Linode for sponsoring today's episode of Developer T. So there's a big difference uh, between committing to, uh, committing to a particular set of technologies to learn and committing to a timeline, right? So uh, I, w- I want everybody to understand this real quick because in the past on this show, I've talked about committing to six months uh, in a in a given language or something like that, and it's in, it's important that um, we find our our footing as developers because we have uh, we have our heads on swivels all the time as developers. There's so many tools swirling around. There's brand new stuff coming out all the time. Hopefully, you've heard this on the show before. I'm going to reiterate it because I think it's one of the biggest downfalls of. Uh, of develop the developer world right now is that we constantly feel like we have to pick up brand new stuff all the time. That's not what we're saying here. I'm not saying that you need to progressively always pick up a new framework every single time you turn your head and decide that you want to. Uh, what we are saying is that you commit to a schedule, commit to a direction, and then as you go along, modify that direction slightly, right? It's all about balance. If you go along and you find out, hey, you know what? Uh, as I'm going down this road, I think slightly shifting my uh, my JavaScript training uh, to also include ES6, like an extra syntax, right? Or slightly shift my JavaScript training to also include a framework that also happens to be written in JavaScript. These are the kinds of adjustments it's not changing direction and turning around, like doing a 180 and going the opposite direction. Uh, no project would get done that way. And uh, so let's talk about how that would affect. So uh, when, we're, when we're talking about agility, which is, which is, you know, the root word is obviously agile. Mm-hmm. Uh, agility is the ability to make changes, right? Uh, or, or, or the ability to, to shift direction. Think about a, a really high-performing athlete. Um, a high-performing athlete is highly agile. They can shift directions very quickly if they need to. So how do we, you know, how do we implement agile in such a way that we prevent from doing constant 180s and basically spinning in a circle? Yeah. So as an organization or an individual, you have 
a mission statement. You have values. And ultimately, what you need to derive from that is an objective. So if it's to learn, you know, X language or to produce X project in learning, you know, X, Y and Z, or a client comes to the table Um, you know, they know they need a website or they need a web application so that their users can do X. Um, So they have an objective. Now, being careful to not be prescriptive too early, as you just discussed, is key here on delivering on those values that they have and also being open to the expertise of the team. So the designer, the developer may even have knowledge or explores knowledge to find a solution for the thing uh, that the client didn't even know was possible. So, or, you know, even the strategist didn't know was possible. So this is the power of the team, you know, working together and not siloed away from each other in a waterfall way. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned this idea of, of them not even knowing what was possible, right? Because uh, the one of the valuable things that developers bring to the table, uh, one of the most valuable things that developers bring to the table is Uh, our our perspective on technology or uh, maybe our our knowledge of specific types of technology that can be used to accomplish goals better than a solution that's been presented by the client. So for example, there's there's many examples that we could throw out here, but a a very simple example would be a client coming to uh, to whiteboard and saying, uh, we need we need a mobile application like we need a, a an app in the app store because we want people to be able to uh, to find our store um, you know easily from their from their phone and what we could tell them is hey look like there's a lot of other options that you can go with right you could uh, for example we could do a whole marketing campaign not even build any kind of application at all do a marketing campaign and and really drum up a lot of business through something like Yelp right uh, we can use something that already exists we could instead of doing a mobile application that lives in the app store we could uh, we could actually just create a mobile uh, a website instead of doing an application in the app store we could do something as simple as a responsive web design right so uh, so the the website just simply loads well on a phone and they may not even know what a responsive web design is right they're are still tons of people, still tons of websites that aren't even uh, updated to that point. So the superpower of uh, of a person in technology, in, in particular, the superpower of uh, a person who's working on behalf of other people who are not in technology, so in yeah. the agency world, uh, is this awareness and uh, the problem-solving ability. We've talked about this on the show before, of clients coming to the table with the solution in mind and we have to rem- remember that clients, uh, we always have to direct clients to stating their problem or stating their goals, not in terms of the deliverable, right? That's a yeah. very important a very important aspect of this because if we make any assumptions, again, another huge theme on developer T is uh, avoiding assumptions and only making the right kinds of assumptions. But if we make any assumptions about the ultimate deliverable, then we could be boxing ourselves into a corner. Going back to the episode that we did uh, just this week uh, on Wednesday, uh, we talked about the Einstellung effect, right? The the way that we've solved something in the past is the way we're going to solve it in the in the future. We have this tendency to solve problems the same way. Uh, people will will have the tendency to solve problems with the wrong solutions uh, very often because they've seen that same problem or a similar problem solved with a particular solution. So they may assume that that solution is the best one for them. And it's part of our job 
after my long spiel here, I'm going to hand the mic back over to Lauren. Um, <laughs> but it's part of our job as agency professionals. Or this this goes for the product world too. For those of you working in startup land, uh, it's your job to remember and remind the product owner, or to remember and remind uh, the person who's really at the top driving this ultimate goal. Remind them to stay focused on the goals rather than the deliverables. Yep, and that's that's really the role that I play a lot uh, that is effective and needs to be a part of any truly agile team or scrum team uh, is the coach. The coach is necessary. I mean, we know this from sports, and really this was birthed out of the idea of uh, scrum from sports. So, uh, yeah, the coach has to help remind the client and the producers and the strategists and product owners um, of these very things and highlight those strengths and remove barriers and make communication so much more easy. But really the role too of a product owner is to challenge the client and challenge the team on these decisions. You know, uh, is this truly a priority? Is this the most valuable thing? Uh, Let's make a decision together and is there another way we could go about solving this you know in our brainstorming sessions and having a coach there to encourage us to ask these kinds of questions and and uh, to really kind of push the team in the right direction is a super important thing I think uh, can you tell me like what are the coaches uh, what is the coach's job practically speaking in a meeting facilitating communication removing barriers uh, that stand in the way of the team members doing their jobs effectively. The most important thing truly is for the work to be done on a daily basis um, and at the end of a sprint for it to be working and testable. Um, So really the, the coach is there to say, hey team, Let's make sure we're communicating really great together. Do we need to be higher touch or lower touch in communication? Do we need to be higher in our uh, documentation specs? Or could we lessen a bit to be more agile? Um, Just begging these really thoughtful questions at every juncture. And also, truly, the, uh, the role of a coach is a servant leader. So not, hey, you need to do this, but what can I do for you? And I know it sounds silly, but... It is the make or break of this equation. So you're saying that being being a, a servant leader is the make or break of the equation of agile working or not, correct? Yes, absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about what servant leadership may actually look like on, on a case-by-case basis uh, in, in the rest of the interview. But for a second, I, w- I want to kind of delineate and, and clear up what may be a little bit of confusion about two terms that we're using co- sort of interchangeably in today's episode. And and Lauren and I have done a little bit of study together to kind of uh, figure out the difference between these terms. Uh, They have been mixed up a lot and really culturally and and in practicality, a lot of people do use these interchangeably. Uh, But I want to delineate or make the difference known between Scrum and Agile. And Lauren, if you want to talk a little bit about the difference between Scrum and Agile, that'd be great. Yeah. Agile is more of the philosophy, the overarching umbrella in which uh, people have implemented Scrum. Scrum is a way, you know, a little bit more specific way of uh, delineating roles and types of ceremonies and patterns, uh, but it's all based on the values and the the framework of Agile. So it's kind of like a a way of doing uh, Agile, right? Absolutely. 
So okay. a, a scrum master is the scrum's version of an agile coach. That makes sense. Uh, so, so the coach really is the scrum master, actually, because what we're saying here is, is that in agile, you have a coach and that coach can be in any of the multiple methodologies that, that are practicing under that agile umbrella. Where Agile is uh, the, the thing that we saw earlier that was compelling was scrum is agile, but agile is not necessarily scrum. Correct. So some of the other things uh, that may be implementing agile are things like extreme programming. There's one called Crystal. I don't even know anything about Crystal. I've done very little research into extreme programming. I know it has something to do with pair programming and uh, and doing you know feature development on one single vertical slice. You know, doing all the way up and down that slice until that one feature is completely done and completely integrated. Uh, so there's some really interesting stuff out there, but. Uh, but the way that Whiteboard is implementing Scrum and the way that it's actually working very well at Whiteboard, um, as a developer, I'm very happy with this process, uh, is through this this Scrum methodology. So I want to talk to you about, uh, we started talking about it uh, a little bit earlier and, and we decided to go back and, and reformat this discussion a little bit. But I want to talk about team weeks. Uh, this is kind of the way that Scrum is being implemented at Whiteboard uh, how are we doing this this weekly iteration, weekly sprint kind of thing at Whiteboard? The way we're implementing Scrum is at the weekly interval. So uh, an iteration can be a week or two weeks. Uh, those are pretty standard, uh, but we have chosen a week. So yeah, in a- can, it, can an iteration be like a month? It's not typically uh, suggested. They try to, they say two week Three week is kind of the sweet spot. Okay, makes sense. And, and the, what is the reason for that, by the way? Shorter life cycles uh, between uh, the things that you are committing to complete, the things you're estimating to complete, uh, impediments that you experience, communication, breakdowns of the team. The shorter the cycle, the more that you can hone in, learn at smaller increments and not reproduce them uh, cyclically for too long. That makes sense. I mean, the the smaller the learning cycle, the more you're going to be able to remember uh, whenever you're trying to, whenever you're going through the next learning cycle. And that much quicker for recovery and improvement. It's kind of like the thing we're talking about earlier, where it's one function versus a thousand functions. Uh, The longer that cycle gets, the harder it is to actually plan for. Yeah. Like our old way at Whiteboard was a four to six month project process. So that's very different than delivering in a week. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you have a week as as the interval. Yes. And there's just a few key ceremonies. You don't have to read too many books or get a certification to learn the basics. Uh, you start with a sprint planning meeting and then you have a daily stand up each of the days of your sprint. So if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you have a daily stand up one at one time each of those days. Uh, five, 10 minutes at the most. And when, when is that uh, that first meeting that you mentioned? What was it called again? A sprint planning meeting. Okay, so when is when is when sprint when does sprint planning happen? At the very beginning of your sprint. So like Monday morning. Precisely. So then we have these stand-ups. Is the sprint planning meeting basically the stand-up for Monday? Yes, with just a little bit more time and effort going into evaluating and breaking down and setting requirements and estimating things of that nature. It's kind of like a kickoff meeting if... if 
you in the agency world we have kickoff meetings uh, yes in in our like all the time but uh, a kick a, a sprint a sprint kickoff meeting i guess you could call it's it. your weekly kickoff okay so uh, then you have these these uh daily meetings at uh, is it better to do them in the morning does it really matter no nope, it doesn't it's totally dependent on your team and when they're available and what works best for them but you know if you've had a meeting on you know, a sprint planning meeting on Monday morning, then your first daily standup is probably going to be Tuesday morning and then Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning. And in that daily standup, three basic questions. And anyone can facilitate this. It doesn't have to be the coach. Uh, and you kind of learn it and you walk in and this is what you do. And you, you, you're really facilitating yourself going forward, which is part of the ownership and beauty of this. So what did I complete yesterday? Explain a little bit about it you know, a 30 second elevator pitch. What am I committing to complete today? And are there any blocks or impediments or, you know, issues that I am up against that I need from another teammate or that we need to resolve before moving on? So as a developer, when I hear that I'm going to have five new meetings on the books, uh, actually more than five, it kind of gives me anxiety, right? Because uh, immediately I start thinking like, oh, this is going to interrupt my my focus or it's going to frustrate me because I'm going to want to come in in the morning, get my coffee, sit down and and dive into a, a difficult problem. Uh, but what I've found uh, the few uh, weeks that we've already been doing this, uh, which, by the way, the reason part of the reason why I asked Lauren to come on the show at this juncture is because uh, we're getting ready to to really roll this out uh, widespread across uh, whiteboards methodology or, or our way of doing things is getting getting ready to adopt this pretty much unilaterally across the company, uh, and we've been testing it out, been doing like a pilot project. If you guys remember the episode about doing a pilot project to learn something, part of the reason why why I did that episode is because I saw this working so well as a pilot project. Instead of trying to roll it out across the company widespread all at once, we've tested it with you know, a few smaller teams first. And that pilot has proven really valuable in helping us learn how we want to do Scrum, how we how we want to do these team weeks at Whiteboard. Uh, but in the few weeks that I've done them, going back to having anxiety about multiple meetings, I've found that these meetings, first of all, they're really energizing because they're with the same small group of people every day. Uh, so kind of a side benefit to this is that you're going to get to know your teammates a little bit better. Uh, for those of you who are not very social naturally, uh, you're you're probably going to have to get used to this over time. But it actually has proven to be really, really valuable to me as a developer. And I am very much so kind of a closed off, traditional uh, introvert of a developer. I love my my headphones and I love my quiet time. You do. Uh, so, uh, but but this has really helped because. Uh, a lot of the time, these stand-ups, what is really unique about these is that you can actually talk about really specific uh, development problems that you're having. Like you don't, so many of the meetings that I have or had before uh, sprint stand-ups, a lot of the time we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have the opportunity to talk about specific engineering issues, right? That was, that was too, quote, in the weeds. We've said that phrase a few times. Uh, that was too down in in the dirt of what was happening. But the point of these standups is to actually go through some of that stuff. So if if you're d- developing, you know, one feature today and then tomorrow you're developing one feature and you're having a meeting about those things, then you can talk about the the specific technical implementation 
in a stand-up, and that's totally okay. In just a few seconds, even, really. I mean, they're efficient. I mean, five, ten, maybe, ten minutes at the most. Yeah, it, it actually uh, doesn't break my... I've found that it doesn't doesn't break my focus. It actually helps me get into into a mode a little bit quicker because I'm starting to think about the complexity of the problem. And it's almost, it's almost like pair programming in a meeting format. We aren't sitting in front of a computer, but we're kind of designing the software in that meeting. Even though that meeting is not necessarily specifically earmarked to do software design, you're still solving problems in that meeting. Because let's say, for example, that the day before you couldn't quite figure out, you know, I don't know, if you're working with JavaScript, you couldn't quite figure out why uh, why that particular NPM package wasn't compatible with this other one, right? And so you meet with, uh, you do your stand-up, and you and another developer can talk through that problem in the stand-up and then get past your problem in that moment. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's the right type of collaboration because it is very detailed. Yeah, and sometimes it's even just a communication like, hey, Matt, I didn't get a chance to talk to you yesterday. Um, my thing is waiting, you know, in... Uh, staging for you to review before we push to production. Boom, done. Yeah, having the all-purpose but also very small meeting is really valuable. We all hate all-purpose meetings because so many times if we go into a meeting without a like a specific goal in mind, then it's you know 45 minutes or an hour um, and it always runs over and nobody knows what's going on and nobody knows who's supposed to be talking next. Uh, but these meetings, because they are limited to the people who've been working together, and because they have a very specific set uh, start time and because they are intentionally about what we did yesterday and what we're doing today, almost every time they're successful, right? It's, it's actually very, um, very effective to do five smaller meetings rather than just one meeting at the beginning of the week and then, you know, go off into your own corners and do your own thing. Yep, Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Developer Tea, me interviewing Lauren Cottrell, who also happens to be my wife. Thank you again to Lauren, of course, for coming on the show and, and for talking with me about Agile. If you don't want to miss out on the second part of this interview, make sure you subscribe in whatever podcasting app you use. Thank you again to Linode for sponsoring today's episode. If you want $20 worth of credit on a Linode account, uh, head over to spec.fm slash Linode. Use the code developerT2017. That's developerT2017 at checkout on linode.com. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode once again. And don't forget, we will be announcing the winners uh, to the JavaScript January Developer T contest. We're actually going to announce them on Monday, February the 6th. Previously, we said we would announce them on Sunday, but just because most people are not going to be at their computers on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, at least in the States, uh, we're going to go ahead and wait until the 6th to announce the winners. That doesn't mean you have an extra day necessarily. Uh, you're going to be kind of cut off at the end of February 5th. And a quick side note on that, if you uh, created the pin that you're trying to enter into this contest before the contest began, unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to mark those pins as uh, as uh, ineligible because it's it's not really fair to the people who are creating brand new pens uh, for you to use something that got uh, that got popular before. Unfortunately, there's some really good pens out there that were created before, and and uh, people who have added the tags to those pens. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to count those. Hopefully, you understand, and and it's just all about fairness and 
Uh, and it's also about the, the entire point of this, which is to get you practicing JavaScript in 2017. Uh, so, so any pins that you want to be eligible, they need to have a creation date of sometime this, uh, during this month, sometime in January. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, enjoy your tea.